there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Uh, how about a favorite recipe that you like to cook from the garden or from the fruit trees? Maybe you want to share one of the recipes from your book with us that you were talking about? Yeah, you know what I really um, like because it's a bit off the beaten path for a lot of people is um, berry curd, which is not an appealing name whatsoever. But if um, if you've ever had lemon curd, it's sort of um, like a spread that uh, you often get it in like English tea rooms. Ooh, no, um, I mean... It's on scones or currants and it's, um, it's made with um, traditionally made with, you know, lemons. But I've adapted uh, the recipe so you can make it with pretty much any berry. I really like it with raspberry. And um, you it's you, know, you mix it with um, eggs and some butter. And it just turns into this, like, delicious spread that you can, um, as I said, you know, have it on scones or toast. You can mix it into yogurt. You can put it in crips. You can use it as, you know, a filling in between layers of a cake. And what I really like to do is freeze a bunch of it. Like I make it in the summer when the fruit is um, available. And then I put it in the freezer in little jars and you can actually eat it frozen. And it's sort of this like really, really rich frozen custard. But um, then I just have it throughout the year. And it's such a treat in the middle of winter to crack open this thing and taste you know a little bit taste of summer that sounds so decadent oh I can just imagine that it it is and it's not hard to make it really isn't um so it's sort of you know a lovely thing to break out when you have guests or put on you know pancakes or waffles it sort of melts and turns into a bit of a syrup and um yeah we usually have it uh, on christmas morning with with um you know we have waffles then and yeah it's a it's a real treat mm-hmm. i um and again it's you know a super easy it's an easy recipe it stores you know well ours don't don't make it through the winter but you can store it for up to six months in the freezer and i don't have um i know a lot of people with big gardens have chest freezers and i have not purchased one I think that's probably in my future at some point but um so I just have a standard freezer um kitchen freezer um and so there I'm very picky about the things that I choose to freeze because they have to be really really good and this is one of them yeah uh and we want to build a root cellar really bad my poor husband's been waiting to build a root cellar for years Oh, I would love to have a root cellar too. I think that where I live, we just get too much rain. And I think that um, it's too damp here. And probably where we would have to put it is like the soggiest part of our backfield. So I don't, I don't know that it's in, that it's in my future, but um, this year I sort of repurposed a very cold laundry room um, to store. Well, I didn't, I didn't grow winter squash this year, but usually I have a couple of crates of winter squash down there. Um, but yeah, yeah. Storage is, is a, you know, if you're growing on a, on a larger scale, storage becomes definitely an issue. Yeah, for sure. Especially Mike, like one of Mike's big goals is to grow, um, potatoes. He loves potatoes. We eat a lot of potatoes and they take up a lot of space. And then we grew a ton of beets this year and we haven't figured out a place to store, like golden beets and beets and carrots are another one of his favorites. And I think 
where we are, you know, a lot of things would, um, well, I don't know, I guess the point of the root cellar is it isn't going to freeze, but it seems like, you know, that would, it'd be cold enough that a lot of things would last out there. And you, where you are, you're so cold, you can't leave them in ground. Um, you know, I don't know, because you know what, the episode I just released yesterday, uh, is this episode I did, um, when I first started with this woman, Kathy O'Leary, who, she talks about leaving the carrots in the ground, even when the ground freezes and just covering them in so much straw, um, that the ground doesn't actually freeze underneath that straw where she puts her carrots. And she says she digs carrots out all year long. So... We and have not tried that. She's not, um, she, she moved here now, but she was in Idaho for years. But I think it's very similar. I'm not 100% positive, but similar kind of climate. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. I should, I should have her come back on and see how it's, because she moved to uh, Montana uh, wow. like two years ago. So see if, how things are going and if she's done that here. Yeah. Or, that's what I do with my dahlia tubers. I mean, a lot of people, um, I mean, depending on your climate, you may have to dig them up and store them indoors, but I leave them in ground and I mulch them heavily. And then because for me, it's also, it's a rotting issue because we get so much rain. So I put a big terracotta pot on top of all the mulch just to, um, A, remind me where they all are and B, um, to shed some of the water. But, um, yeah, I, I've, been able to get away with not digging them up um we do i mean we we depending on the year we get some snow but we do get a little bit of a a a soil freeze but nothing like where you are see and i was wondering about that so then you don't have to replant them every year because i thought i thought about that with dahlias that it seemed no i don't um and honestly i mean in some ways i feel like they're safer in the soil than like i'm you know, I think if I dug them up, I don't trust myself to like, I don't have a great place to store them. We have a garage, but it's on the south side of the house and it gets really um, warm on hot, on sunny days, even in the winter. So, um, you know, and and then you have to replant them and uh, I just don't trust myself. And um, I wasn't really a Dahlia gardener until we found this property and when we were digging things up for a, a vegetable garden, we kept on finding these tubers and they were dahlias. So the ones that are here in the, in the yard um, originally survived years of neglect and they were never dug up. So I, I just gamble on it each year and, um, and so far so good. I mean, I think probably I, I have dug some up to divide them and sometimes there is some rot on them, but there's also enough that's not rotted that they re-sprout. Like I haven't, I haven't lost one completely yet. So, um, fingers crossed (laughs) it's working so far and I do mulch them heavily, um, and put down a lot of straw and then put these, um, these pots over them. I know some people, um, put just black plastic, Mm -hmm. um, like a whole strip of plastic over their entire dahlia bed to keep the water off. Because as I said, it's for us, it's not, so much that it gets really cold. It's just, we get a lot of rain. Um, but my dahlia bed is, is very sandy soil and it's slightly sloped. So I think it drains well. Mm, These are great tips. I think that thing about putting the upside down pot is just genius. You know, and it, it actually sort of, um, I mean, again, like it reminds me what is where I always put a tag underneath it because 
if you leave the tags out in the weather, oftentimes the names come off. Um, so I, I put the tag underneath the pot, but it also kind of like adds a little interest to the winter garden to have, it looks a little funny, but, um, I have other things that grow up around it. And when kids come over, they're always like, what are you doing? (laughs) So I get to explain to them and that turns into a little bit of education. Nice. I was just talking to a friend of mine about my mom in her backyard. There's, there's a school back there with a, like a nature trail kind of thing. And they have like this little fairy garden back there. And it kind of reminds me of her. I was telling a friend of mine about my mom's little fairy garden that she has back there that they're always changing things, but they have a lot of like, you know, those kind of pots that they decorate and make into like little fairy houses and kind of reminds me of that. Uh I love the tags and I love, I was just also reading like, um, I have this book that this gardener guy did about Monet's gardens yeah. And, um, how it's just like there's a whole chapter about the things that Monet would let be in his garden. Like he was really into benches, but he really didn't like other objects. But he was, you know, bird feeders were he was big on bird feeders, trellises. But it's interesting to read about the different things Monet liked in his garden and didn't like. I, I visited Monet's garden when I was um, a student living in Europe. And the day that I was there, it was filled with small French school children sketching the garden, which was just so charming. Oh, how cool. I can't believe when I went to Paris, like after all these years of dreaming about it and wanting to go, like when I bought my ticket, I just, I wasn't really paying attention and it was like his garden wasn't going to open for two more weeks. But then I could have changed my ticket, but I was afraid I would lose my courage and I wouldn't go. And so I just went anyway. And then, and then I actually went to Giverny and I couldn't find it. Like I was like, well, I don't care. I'm just going to walk there and check it out. And, you know, you could probably see the house from outside the gate or something. And I, I was, I don't know. I couldn't find it, but yeah, I've always dreamed about going there. And then my one trip to France, I missed it, but it's okay. I think you'll have to go back at some point. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I I went because my passport was expiring and I thought I'm never going to make it was part of it. But then I've been like painting all my photographs and I made this like little guide. It's going to be called like a hippie's guidebook to Paris. And uh, it's making me want to go back really bad. So I don't know. I might my passport expired. I don't know. It was a once in a lifetime dream. I don't know if I'll ever get to go or not. Who knows? This might be a reason to renew the passport, though. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. So how about a favorite? I'm sorry. I know like I told you it was only going to be 45 minutes when we're going like I'm trying to get through. But no worries. How about do you have a favorite Internet resource or a place you like to surf on the web? For garden garden related things. You know, it's it's interesting. (laughs) Um, A lot of my garden inspiration these days are is coming from Instagram. And that just comes down to, you know, who you follow. But um I've been following a lot of um, English gardeners, some Dutch gardeners. Um, There's a woman I'm going to, I will look up her name because um, she's kind of fantastic and she has a YouTube channel um, and she is um, in the Netherlands and has kind of a big garden and is doing a lot of permaculture things. Um, What is her? Let's see. Well, we can put the link in the show notes, but it's good to spell it because most of my listeners are, you know, listening on the phone. But Instagram's just so big these days. And then the new Instagram TV, which I love because at least you can post things that are more than, you know, what it used to be, like 45 seconds. Like now you can post something up to um, 10 minutes. So 
I, I'm really digging Instagram. I'm not surprised. I think Instagram is a great place for inspiration. So her, um, her Instagram handle is grown to cook. And her name is Vera. I am going to just butcher her last name. Uh, Grutink. Grutink. Um, I speak a little German, but I don't speak Dutch. Uh, so she has a really active Instagram account and also the YouTube channel. And she talks about, um, she does, you know, all these polycultures where she's growing sort of compatible seeds together. And, um, so she's super inspirational. Um, there's a account out of England called Fordham Abbey that is just a really, really beautiful garden, um, with this, this old, old Abbey, um, and yeah, I, so Instagram is kind of where I'm spending a lot of time. Um, some of the people that I've been following for years though, are, um, uh, you grow girl, Gayla trail, who is, um, Canadian. She has a series of books and a blog and is also active on Instagram and, um, Margaret Roach, of course, who is in upstate New York, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, who has a series of books. Um, her site is a way to garden. Um, and then I'm really super inspired by the, um, the farmer florist movement, which I know you've had Erin, um, Benzacane on your show. She's Florette flowers out of Skagit Valley in Washington, which is just about an hour North of where I am. But, there's also another um, another farmer in Ontario um, who uh, Melanie and her um, her farm is called Dahlia May Farm, mm-hmm. and she is Erin um, is just amazing with with uh, all that she's doing, um, and I love Melanie because she's. Uh, just probably about four years into farming and she's growing on land that is her family's land, but she is really um, very like she writes a lot in her captions on Instagram and she's very honest about what it takes to do what they're doing and how she's waking up at four in the morning and, you know, all of the work that goes into um, making the magic happen. Because I think there's, you know, a lot of people like we all love to look at these beautiful, beautiful pictures of, fields of dahlias or sunflowers, but she is really sort of pulling back the veil on what it takes to make that and how hard it really is and how you're, you know, gambling your life savings on, on thousands of dollars of bulbs in the spring that you're not going to see the return for, for a really long time. And, um, so it's really, really interesting. I, I love her honesty about that. Um, and there's another account that I just recently came across called Endless Summer Farm. And uh, he also is is um, farming family property and he grows a lot of dahlias. But the other side of the um, the farm is a Christmas tree farm that his, his parents started when he was a kid. And he just did a tour and sort of took took everyone through um, the, you know, a morning at the Christmas tree farm. And it was really interesting to hear all that goes into growing Christmas trees. So I'm just really inspired. There's so many people doing, um, working super hard and doing amazing things. And, and it's, um, you know, when I get, 
when I get discouraged with my own garden and my mole tunnels, that's where I go. <laughs> wow. What, what, what about, what's your, um, channel or what do they call it again? I told you drawing a blank. Oh, your handle. My, my, you know, it's, um, it's T Austin. It's T E A underscore A U S T E N like Jane Austen. And, um, yeah, and I post about the garden and also, you know, I'm, I'm also do some food writing. So, um, I, you know, I'm posting what I'm cooking out of the garden as well, um, and travel and, and just different things. Um, yeah, Instagram sort of become, you know, I, I've had a blog for years, although I don't really write much there anymore. Um, and that's called tea and cookies. Um, so it's tea and cookies blog.com and there are actually a ton of recipes there and there is a whole gardening section. There's a tab up at the top and you can, um, look at, you know, see pictures of, of, um, my big garden and, and the gardens before. Um, but it is a, I mean, I use my blog all the time as a recipe archive to, um, to use up the produce because I think growing your own food really changes how you cook because it's no longer, what do I feel like eating or, you know, what looks good at the grocery store? It's like, I have six heads of cauliflower. What on earth am I going to do with them? So it becomes really seasonal and very, um, you know, it's choice, choice based, but those choices happen very early in, in the year in terms of what you choose to plant. Um, so that was something I had to learn is, you know, don't just get the starts that look good at the nursery. Like really think about what, how you eat and what you eat and what you're going to use up. Um, because it's, you know, it's no, like sometimes it's fun to grow things and then you discover, actually, I don't really love this. I actually do love chard, but there was one year I bought, um, a little, you know, a little pot of starts and it turns out there were 40 chard starts in there and I planted them all and they all thrived. And then all of a sudden you're trying to figure out what to do with that much chard. Um, so I, that was in my community garden and I was lucky because they had a program, um, to donate, uh, food to, um, the food banks. So you could just drop it off in the garden shed and, um, someone would pick it up at the end of the day and, and bring it to, um, some community kitchens. But so they got a lot of charge from me that year, but you know, if you don't, if you don't love kale, certainly don't plant a lot of kale. Um, and it's been a learning process to figure out, you know, what, what I can grow well and also like and enjoy. Well, like I said, you have been dropping golden seeds like crazy today. Like so much of this, like, well, so I've really been working on my, I have this thing called free organic garden course that people can go to. And I've really been working on it this year. Like I even ordered, I don't know if you know Amy Porterfield, but she's like the queen of online courses and like I've been going through it with her. And so this weekend, especially like I, I'm making like a workbook and uploaded it to create space, which I'm, I don't know if you have any dealings with them, but, um, they make things so easy, but then in the flip side, it's like, I spent like three and a half hours there at least just trying to tweak one little thing and just, this is it. Nope. One more change. This is it. But anyway, um, I talk a lot about this and like last year, my black Friday project was this garden journal that I made. And I, I always say it starts out in your kitchen in your recipe folder. What do you cook? What do you like to cook? Cause gardening is a lot of work. I mean, there's shortcuts you can take and there's things that are so enjoyable about being out there. But if 
you know, really think about what are the what's the produce that you want to buy that's super expensive at the store that you can't afford to buy? What are the things that you want to make? What do you, you know, really, I, I think so much of what you're saying is true. And I've been there before with the chard. Thank God I love <laughs> chard. But I'm funny. I really only like the red and the yellow. I don't like the white chard, which my mom, she only likes the white chard. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I, think, uh, I think the red and the yellow is tastier and tender. Yeah. And so, um, but I could eat chard like, I don't know. I really think I'm part rabbit or something like uh, I like to use the stems instead of celery because celery is harder for me to grow. So I just and I just like the flavor of it more. But people tell me they're like, oh, it's too earthy or my grandkids will be like, oh, you know, they'll eat like it's kind of stringy and. I don't know, maybe, but I, I just, um, I went to the farmer's market one year with like a whole bag full of chard. Cause that was like what we had a ton of and couldn't give it away. Like you said, <laughs> I love that idea of like at the community garden where they would just like, that's what I need a place where I can just like leave it on a shelf when I have it. Cause I always like, I'm like, when does the, you know, when does the food pantry take food? What day is that? I don't know what day it is. I mean, and is that the day I'm going to go? Like, I want the day I harvest it that's convenient for me to be just like a drop-off place where I can just put it somewhere. I That's yeah. a great way to... Um... It's a fantastic program. It's called Lettuce Link. And um, it, it operates here in Seattle. And they encourage the community gardens to either, you know, like put your excess in there or some people it's, they say grow a row and, you know, just plant some things specifically that, um, that you can give to the food pantries. And I mean, they're always so, um, so excited to have fresh food because that's not something that they get really easily. So, um, you know, they can get a lot of canned things and day old bread and stuff like that, but you know, fresh produce is, is, um, an exciting thing for them. So, yeah, it's a great thing to do. Yeah. All right. Well, what if- I'm also going to send you one of my favorite chard recipes. Oh, cool. Okay. I mean, I love chard and I can eat chard. I mean, my favorite recipe is basically just sauteing it with a little salt and pepper and some other stuff, but I'm up for new recipes for sure. Somebody sent me a really cool recipe for um, making these rice uh, that you wrapped up in like the chard leaves that were really good. So. Oh yeah. Uh, that sounds just. Yeah. How about, tell us about your book. Um, like, is there anything we didn't talk about in there that you really wanted to mention today? It's called Growing Berries and Fruit Trees in the Pacific Northwest, How to Grow Abundant Organic Fruit in Your Backyard. Um, like, do you want to, like, some of the things that really stood out to me that I thought was cool, I, I think I already mentioned that raspberries come on canes, that the starch are called canes. But, like, what about those, like, little fruit socks, that the apple and pear socks? Like, that was just fascinating to me. Yeah, that um so in the Pacific Northwest we have um coddling moths and apple maggots and they basically will um lay eggs on your tiny tiny baby um it's uh it's palm fruit so it's pears and apples and um when when the fruit is about this like smaller than a quarter um they will lay eggs and then they will tunnel inside and they can, you know, like those children's books where you see the apple with the worm sticking out. That's what we're talking about. So you'll either get worm trails, like brown worm trails throughout the fruit, or you'll get these tiny, tiny, like thread, almost like trails that are, um, that aren't, you know, if I see that in a, in an apple, like I'm, 
I can still eat it, but what it does is it really um, ruins the storage capacity of the fruit. So um, it, you know, it doesn't render it entirely inedible if, you know, if you don't have high perfection standards for your backyard fruit, but, um, but you can't, you know, the fruit won't keep for very long. So um, there is, this actually happened in Oregon. Um, A guy was, you know, shoe shopping with his, with his wife or girlfriend and saw that those little peds, like those um, kind of pantyhoe little socks that, um, that they give out at shoe stores for women to try on shoes. And he thought, I wonder if we could use that as a barrier on the fruit. So that is something that people have been using, um, around here, just backyard growers for quite some time. Um, and it is, you know, if you have a lot of trees, it's pretty labor intensive to put a little sock on each piece of fruit that you want to keep. That's what I I, was thinking. Like, how could they possibly do this? I'll be really honest and say that uh, we don't sock all of our apples. We we have a Liberty tree, which is our favorite apple tree. And we do all of those because we really like those apples. And then we have some some you know older trees that we inherited that are that are not our favorites. And um, and those don't always get done. But um, I think that'll so- take the pressure off of people. And I think they'll like that. Well, it, you know, it does protect your fruit and you can also, you know, some people put, um, little paper bags around or you can even use plastic, although that, that's sort of less, um, less recommended because, um, it can, um, retain moisture and, uh, lead to some, you know, fungal or rot issues with the fruit, but it is a way to protect it. I have noticed, I think that people are um, experimenting more and more with putting nets over the entire tree. And it has to be a really, really fine net. So this is something I'm going to actually experiment with in my garden next year. Um, because the city of Seattle has started doing these in the public parks, I've noticed. And it looks a little funny because, you know, you have these sort of ghostly looking trees because they have this big net and the net has to be gathered around the trunk pretty tightly so nothing can get in. I don't think none of these methods are 100 percent, but the big thing, a lot of times I think people who, you know, buy houses that have fruit trees in the backyard, um, they don't really know how to care for them. And in order to get the best fruit possible, there are some things that you do need to think about and, um, and do. So it's, it's, um, we have a great organization here in Seattle called city fruit that is a gleaning organization. And they, um, you know, if you have a lot of fruit trees in your garden, you don't, can't keep up up with them. You can, you know, register your trees with them and they'll send volunteers out to pick the fruit and, um, you can keep some of it if you'd like. Um, and then the bulk of it will go to the food bank. So they're kind of closing that loop there as well. But they're really trying to um, help people, support people in growing better fruit as well. So they, um, you know, sell the fruit socks every spring and have different classes on pruning and and how to care for your fruit. Because there is just a tremendous amount of, um, you know, food waste from backyard trees. Because, again, you know, maybe you bought the house, but you didn't really, you weren't really buying it for those three old apple trees in the back. Um, so the more we can support people in, in, um, you know, raising fruit that ends up being edible rather than having to go into the compost or, or, um, you know, rot on the ground, the better off we're all going to be. Sure. And 
Oh, what was I going to say that you were talking about that was so cool? Uh, oh, this is what I want to know. So, um, if they put these little socks on or they put the net on, but then do they have to take them back? Like, it's only like a two-week germination time when these, right? It's when they're laying the eggs that you have to cover to protect the tree or when they put yeah. that net around that closes it off because you said nothing can get in it. So those, like, coddling moss or whatever they are yeah. can't get in and... So it's eggs. primarily end of May, beginning of June, but um, those moths have a couple of life cycles, so it's best to just leave them on. Um, people who cover their fruit oh. with, with uh, like paper bags, uh-huh. you need to take those off because um, the fruit will grow, but like if you have apples, they won't redden if they're, you know, they actually need sunlight to do that. So people will take the bags off just like a couple of weeks before they plan to harvest to let the fruit sort of rosy up. But we leave our socks on till the end. I actually, right now I have out on the deck, I have a basket of apples, the last apples from our tree and they are all still in their socks. And I just haven't gotten around to turning them into applesauce yet, but. How interesting. So you leave them on there just till you pick it and everything. Well, that's not as bad then time-wise. Yeah, no, it, it, you just put them on and, um, and they, you know, because the socks sort of grow with the fruit, um, they'll just, you know, stretch. Um, and it is, you know, it is a pain. Um, but again, as I said, I think that growing fruit trees is like being an aunt or uncle and you kind of just have to show up for like, you know, birthdays and graduations. And this is one of those, like, got to show up. Um, you got to prune your fruit trees, and then if you're growing palm fruit, um, apples or pears, you you um, in in an area that have have these pests, then you need to to do a little bit of pest prevention in the spring. Do you want to say anything about pruning? I know that's something my listeners are really interested in. I know, but I know we've been talking for a long time. Yeah, well, I've. I have no problem talking for a long time. I'm happy to okay. do it. Well, my listeners are always like, they've never complained about time. Like they're like, they like tend to like longer interviews. I kind of like them shorter just because, um, the time it takes me to edit. But I mean, yeah. uh, if you want to share, I'm, I know they would love to hear anything you have to say. So about pruning. I pruning, I think is a hugely intimidating topic for people. So, um, there are entire books about pruning. And if you really get into it, there are, uh, I recommend some in the back that are good to um, as resources. But basically, I would say about pruning is um, in the beginning is a you don't have to do it yourself. Um, I think the idea of pruning keeps a lot of people from growing fruit trees. And there are professionals that you can hire to do your trees. I will say you should be careful about who you hire. And, um, there is a, an association of, um, oh gosh, I'm going to have to look the name up and um, give it to you for the show notes. But, um, you do want to not just hire the person who comes to your door and offers to prune your trees because they might be great and they might not be. So this certification, um, is only available to people who have had a couple of years experience and have passed a test. So they need to know some basics um, in order to be certified. And um, it's an, an arborist certification. But also find someone who has experience with fruit trees because not everyone does. And, you know, you always, I have some horror stories I can share. Um, 
but I won't. Uh, but it's just, you know, you don't want to damage your trees. And the other thing is that pruning a tree, particularly if you plant your own tree and you're starting out with a small um, bare root tree or a small potted tree, like this is an opportunity to kind of influence the growth of your tree. And it is a little bit like a conversation that takes place over years and years. And whatever you do to a tree is going to you know, the tree will react. And in the book, I go into, you know, more detail about um, how a tree will react. And there are different types of there's a heading cut, which will stimulate growth and a thinning cut, which you you want to use if you're trying to open up a tree to make sure that you get sunlight on your fruit. And um, it's good to prune twice a year, you don't need to prune heavily at either time. But in the winter, you you know, the leaves are all down and the tree is dormant and you can sort of look at the shape of the tree and decide, you know, how you want to influence the growth. And then in the summer, when the tree is all leafed out, that really shows you whether or not your the fruit is getting any sunlight. So that's the sort of pruning you do to, you know, take off um, some foliage just to um, to open up your, your trees. So it's, you know... Pruning can be really complicated, but it doesn't have to be. And what I really wanted to do, because again, this isn't a book entirely about pruning and you can get as, as nerdy about pruning as you want with, um, with a lot of, I mean, there are some very thick pruning books. Um, but I just really wanted to sort of demystify and put people at ease because in, you know, it's really, I mean, (laughs) trees want to grow and, um, there, you know, even when someone does a hatchet job of pruning, like the trees respond and they bounce back and, you know, it can take some years to recover from that. But when you're talking about fruit trees, you're talking about the long game. I mean, these trees will, the trees I planted will most likely, and I very hope, much hope will outlive me. And that's kind of an interesting and exciting thing too, I think with, with planting berries and fruit trees is that, you know, this is a, this is sort of like legacy gardening and it requires a lot less work from you than annual vegetable gardening, but it's going to be around for a long time. So um, you have, you know, you have a lot of um, you've time to learn about these things. I mean, if you, if you go and plant some bare root trees this winter, like you have some seasons to figure out about pruning before it's really a a necessity and, um, and it's, I think it's really exciting. I mean, there are, you know, blueberry bushes that live for a hundred years. So the fact that, you know, the bushes I planted will maybe, you know, feeding someone's grandchildren is kind of a cool thing to think about. Wow. That's so true. That could be your next book, Growing a Legacy Garden. <laughs> what a great topic. And it's so true. And, it, and, um, just the, the, I don't know, the, way you talk about shaping them and letting the, you know, making sure that they get the sunlight in. Like I talk a lot about, um, you know, planning your garden and thinking about where's it going to be? Where's the sun going to be in winter? Where's the sun going to be in the spring? Where's it going to be, you know, look at your land and, um, just figuring those things out. And I really like that part about it's going to be there to feed somebody in the future, people thinking about the future. So anything else in your book that we didn't talk about that you really wanted to mention? Well, I think that um, 
one of the things that I had the most fun with writing the book was um, digging into some more unusual berries. Um, I'm a real fan of kiwi berries, which are a vine um, and you need to be grown up some support. But kiwi berries, if, if you're not familiar with them, are um, they look like miniature kiwis, you know, the, the brown fuzzy kiwis. They are like yeah. a miniature size. It's about the size of an olive, but the skin is doesn't have the fuzz on it. It is a soft green um, or reddish skin. And it means you can just pop the whole thing in your mouth. And they are, they taste fantastic. Kids love them. And the most exciting thing I think is that they come ripe in September and October. So just as all of, all of the like juicy, wonderful summer berries are out the door, we get um, a crop of kiwi berries, which take us into winter and have, high vitamin C. So they're good for cold season. Um, and that is a really, really fun thing to grow. Um, I get, get into, uh, wild berries, salmon berries, thimble berries, um, evergreen huckleberries, which are a great thing to know about because they grow really well in the shade. So if you don't have an ideal sunny location for strawberries, you can grow evergreen huckleberries. And in fact, they'll actually grow much larger in the shade. They can, they can take some sunlight, but they won't be as, as tall or as big. Um, currants and gooseberries, I think are really, really underrated because that family of, um, of berries, it's the ribes family were actually banned for years because they are an alternate host for the white pine blister rust. So in area in states that have um, have timber industries, they outlawed planting them. Um, but they are legal now in most states, and they have um, developed blister rust resistant varieties. And um, so they're very very popular in the UK and in other European countries, but they haven't really developed much of a following here in the U S um, also uh, black currants again is another, another thing that is um, super popular in, in Europe um, and elderberries, which are fantastic um, to, you know, f- fight off winter colds. Uh, and all of these are really, really easy to grow. They just haven't gotten much love here in the States. So I'm a big proponent of those um, So yeah, there's, there's, um, sections on, you know, tart berries like lingonberries and cranberries that people don't generally grow in their backyard either. So yeah, there's just a lot to play around with. It was, um, it was a really rewarding project to do because I learned so much. And also (laughs) I feel, I feel honor bound to tell everyone, um, that the book has, I've laid out sort of ideal, um, like the ideal way to, that you should take care of your berries, but I didn't do half of what is in the book for years and my berries, you know, grew quite well. So it's not as hard and or intimidating as, as you think it might be. And I just think everyone, I mean, if you have a corner of your yard or even if you have containers on a deck, because there, I um, made a point to, to pick out some varieties, um, for the strawberry strawberries grow great in containers, but for the raspberries and blueberries as well that are container friendly because really again, it's the reward to ratio effort. And if you stick some raspberry canes in the corner of your yard or a blueberry bush, like it is going to give you fruit for year after year after year. And um there there aren't, you know, again, it's the return on investment. There's um you 
the gardening world is not full of things that are maintenance, almost maintenance free and so rewarding. So I think it's, it's, um, it is, uh, a great kind of lazy gardener hack. Excellent. Well, I still like, I don't know about the lazy gardeners. I don't know that many lazy people, but I think it's a convenient thing and it will help you be a better gardener. So, uh, well, and I think it's even something like if you're not a gardener, yeah, like have like blueberry me. bush. In- <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but having a blueberry bush in the corner of your yard, you know, is really like, again, it's one of the best investments you can make. Agreed. Okay, here's my final question. Ready? It's kind of a doozy. Okay. If there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, Tara, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Oh, I think climate change. Absolutely. Um, I would love to, I don't know if there's, um, I mean, I think as a gardener, I would just encourage everyone to grow a little bit. Like even if it is, a, you know, if you plant a little pot of parsley on your deck and didn't buy parsley again for the rest of your life, because again, like those herbs are so frustrating. You have to, you know, buy a huge bunch of them to, you know, get the like two sprigs that you need for whatever recipe you're making. And then to be honest, like oftentimes the rest of them rot in your, or turn to slime in your refrigerator. So I, um, food waste, I think is a huge issue. Um, there, 40% of food in mid to well-to-do countries is wasted and it's wasted late in the process. So um, generally like at the grocery store and um, kitchen, you know, home kitchen stage. Um, and, you know, that food, when it gets thrown into landfills, you know, rots and, and releases methane, which, you know, goes into the whole um, climate change, um, greenhouse gas problem. So I would really just encourage everyone, and I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but um, when I can get my hands on someone who isn't already a gardener, I may really just tell them, grow herbs, grow some berries, do something that is easy and is going to um, you know, cut down on, on your food waste and the transportation miles that require to get your food to your house. So, um, I know a lot of people, you know, buy like another thing I think that is really helpful for gardening is that it ties you into the seasons and you know, when, (laughs) you know, when green bean season or when berry season is because it's happening in your yard. And a lot of people, you know, buy berries out of season and in the winter and a, they taste really, really awful. They're those, you know, honking big berries that are white in the center and have almost no flavor. It's like the ghost of a, of a strawberry flavor. But they're also, you know, they've been picked three states away and shipped to you and they're sitting in a plastic carton. And that is like three different kinds of unfortunate. So um, that's 
a big part of why I'm happy there are recipes in the book because I want people to grow more of their own and preserve it for the winter and get off the out of season, you know, flown from, from States or, or countries far away fruit loop. Uh, that was so eloquent. I'm glad there's recipes in the book too, because it's so true. And I feel so guilty every time. Like I I can like stand in a grocery store. I kid you not for like 10 minutes and go back and forth with this like little play in my head. Like I should buy the strawberries. They're healthy for me. It's fruit that I'll eat. I shouldn't buy the strawberries because they're, you know, covered in chemicals and they're in this plastic container. And what am I going to do? And like for 2018, I really have been trying to give up the plastic and I just will go back and forth, back and forth. Like, should I buy them? Should I not buy them? Should I buy them? Should I not buy them? Like, uh, I think your solution to grow them and then store them, um, is fantastic. And you know, what's interesting also, um, and this, you know, this doesn't entirely solve the problem, but frozen fruit is picked at the peak of ripeness and frozen and, it's, um, again, you know, it may still have a lot of transportation miles, but it's actually, I think that, um, in terms of carbon impact, it is probably better than buying the cart, like the plastic cartons of out of season berries. So, um, you know, it, it like they don't slice as nicely onto your breakfast cereal, but they're going to have a lot more flavor. And, you know, again, they're, they're picked in season and just flash frozen. So they're actually a better food product. Again, it doesn't entirely, entirely close the loop, but, um, that's something to think about. That is something to think about. And I like that advice because my big thing with fruit and see, this is why I like to buy strawberries is, I feel like fruit is really messy. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just because I spend so much time eating in my car. And But even if I'm in my house, like, I just feel like you bite into even sometimes a pear or a peach. It's just dripping down your arms. Or, you know, I'm trying to, like, I don't always, like, just sit down to eat. Like, it seems like I'm eating on the go a lot. And so a fruit is really hard for me. And I'm always trying to force myself to eat fruit. So that's why I'm like, I should buy the berries because they're good for me. But frozen berries would be even easier to deal with. So I'm going to, I like that advice. Nobody's said that, that I can remember. I'm starting to get up to the point where I've like 200, you're going to be episode 255. And I started like, I'm not sure if I can remember everybody's thing anymore. So (laughs) I don't think anybody said that though, but they might've. And then like one of the biggest things for me was Megan came, which is totally, I'm really came on and talked about how you can take red peppers and just freeze them without having to blanch them or cook them or anything. And then they're good for cooking in the winter. So I often wonder about fruit. Like, can you just throw raspberries just right in the freezer in a plastic bag? You can. Yes, you can. Yeah. I have a section on, on freezing um, fruit in, in the book and also like making fruit leather and some things that are good for longer storage. But, um, you know, almost like fruit, all the berries you can just, um, what's best is to, you know, freeze them on like a cookie sheet. So they're all individual because if you pack them in a, um, like a, a zip top bag, they will freeze together. They'll fuse into like a block of fruit, <laughs> um, which is fine if you're, you know, I, I freeze like pears like that because I'm just going to turn them into pear sauce. But if you want to, you know, either eat them individually or use them in baking or, you know, like put them into muffins or something, it's best to sort of freeze them on a cookie sheet. So they're all separate and then put them in a bag. Um, but I have like 
probably a quarter of my freezer is um, filled with blueberries, raspberries, cherries. I don't grow enough cherries, so I buy a case from a farm in the summer, and I pit them and I freeze them. Um, and uh, what else? Um, I don't grow enough strawberries to freeze, so there are some times, some years, I'll go out to a U-Pick at a local organic farm, and I will just pick a lot. And that's actually another really easy, like if you're not producing the fruit yourself in large enough quantities for storage, it's really easy to go out to a U-Pick in season, and it's so much cheaper than what you're going to get in the grocery store. Um, and it's, you know, it's a it's a nice afternoon in the sun. Take some friends, take some kids, and um, really just tie yourself into those seasons. It's um, once you get to know if you live in an area with with farms nearby, a lot of them, you know, have websites and will tell you what's available for picking when. And I like to combine it with like a camping trip. So, you know, we'll go camping in the weekend on the way back. We'll stop and, and hit some of the berry farms uh, um, in the farmyard in the farmland around Seattle and then, you know, come back with, with a case or two of berries and, you know, you can make jam or you can freeze them or you can just gorge yourself on, you know, but I've really become very seasonal in my eating since I've been gardening. And I also, I I was editor of a, a sustainable agricultural magazine for a couple of years and got very into local foods, but, you know, I know that there are berries and tomatoes in the middle of the winter in the grocery store, but they taste like nothing. <laughs> Those tomatoes taste like like wet tissue paper. And maybe I've become a snob, but when when you've had the good stuff, it's really hard to go back. So, so I, you know, true. So I would much rather preserve those things out of season. Um, I I roast a ton of cherry tomatoes in the summer and just put them in little mason jars and stick them in the freezer. And, you know, it's not the same as having fresh tomatoes in the winter, but it's a really, I mean, they are amazing in their own right and so delicious. And so easy to put on like spaghetti or make like a homemade tomato sauce and the taste is just doesn't even compare to that kind of thing that you buy at the store. Yeah, they're a real, a real treat. Um, So yeah, it's, um, I, it's probably requires a little bit more thinking but that's what I would like. I would love us all to go back to the whole climate change issue. I would love if we could all take some time to make personal inventories of our lives and see where we can make some of those changes. Um, and again, it's not, you know, I really do believe that government industry have got to be pushed in the right direction as well, because, um, you know, me not, not purchasing herbs is not going to save the planet on its own. But um, everyone making some collective positive decisions um, does make an impact and and has to make an impact. I don't I don't think we as I said, it's not optional any longer. Not if we want to stick around here. Perfect. How about I mean, not that you haven't dropped like a ton, but you have like an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden. Um, You know what I uh, an inspirational quote. Um, well, here, here you go. Actually, this is a really common, um, a common quote in, in permaculture. Um, they say that the, uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. So 
I just take that to mean like jump in and do it. I mean, I remember I moved into my first house in Seattle and I wanted to plant rhubarb, but it takes a couple of years to get established. And I didn't think I'd be around in that house for that long. And of course I was, and I should have just planted it. Um, so I would say, you know, uh, read some books, get, get some working knowledge and, um, and go and do it because, Definitely, you know, you can you can think about planting a blueberry bush for three years or you can plant it now and be having lots of berries in three years. But I will say I have another resource that I um, that I forgot to mention when we were talking about food waste. But uh, a friend of mine just published a book called um, Scraps, Peels and Stems Recipes and Tips for Rethinking Food Waste at Home. And it's really fantastic. Um, from a local publisher here in Seattle. Um, so her name is Jill Leitner, L-I-G-H-T-N-E-R, and the book is Scraps, Peels, and Stems. So she has recipes for, you know, like using that, the core of the um, the cauliflower that, you know, you cut off all the little flowerets and you're left with this kind of hunk of a core. And she's figured out good ways to, you know, do things with it. So um, this is kind of, we're both nerdy in this food waste issue and, and she's a food writer as well. So that's a great resource. Awesome. Well, I'm going to reach out to her and see if she'll come talk to us on the show. Maybe you could. Oh yeah. Us. Yeah. Uh, happy. To. She's great. Okay. Well tell listeners your website again and how they can connect with you and they're going to want to order this book. Um, they can get it on pre-order right now. It's a great deal, right? For is it Black Friday yeah. or Cyber Monday or something? And then yeah. when they get the book, they're going to want to write you a five-star review. I tried to write a review and that's how I figured out it was on pre-order because it wouldn't let me write the review. Like, this book's not for sale <laughs> <Yeah>. yet. <laughs> nope. Um, the book is out at the end of January and um, it, again, it's called Growing Berries and Fruit Trees in the Pacific Northwest. Um and my, you can reach me at taraweaver.com and there's a link there to my blog, which again is, I don't write very often, although I'd like to, I'd like to get back into the, into the blogging swing of things, but there's a whole section on gardening there. There are, is massive recipe archives that again, I, I go to the blog to find my own recipes, but I use them all the time. It's been fun since the book has been out. I've actually been using the recipes from the, from the book in my kitchen. So I don't have to look them up on the, on my computer anymore. I can just pull a book off the shelf and that's really fun. Um, and then I'm on Instagram and Twitter and all of the other places as T Austin. It's T E A underscore Austin, A U S T E N. Awesome. Well, we'll put all the links in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge. It's been a long time since I've done, we're almost at the two hour mark episode or an interview this long, but it's just been, you were just dropping golden seed after golden seed. It was so fun to talk to you. And I know you're just like my avatar out there and they're going to love it as much as I have. And congratulations on your book and your many books. Um, there's some other great reads on your website. Like I said, I'm dying to read the butcher and the vegetarian and you've got just, uh, I just feel like a total kinship to you. Like you're just somebody that I was, not like a lot like me. So thank you for sharing oh, everything been, today. It's been so nice chatting with you. And I love hearing about it's so interesting for me to, to um, hear stories about gardeners working in different climates, because the challenges are different. And it's sort of an interesting thing to think about. Um, I, I sort of growing up in Northern California, I have 
I sometimes complain about the Northwest winters, but I'm, I'm dealing with nothing like what you're dealing with. So it's, it's very inspiring. Huh, that's funny. Well, I love the winter, so I'm a cold weather girl and I'm so excited because hunting season finally ended. So I can't wait to go for a walk in the woods and enjoy, uh, without having to wear my bright orange and worry about my dogs. So, oh, I bet. I bet. Uh, yeah. That's, that's not something that we have to think about much in Seattle. <laughs> I know. My mom's always like, what? Hey, Green Future Growers. Did you get your copy of the Organic Gardener podcast, Garden Journal, and Record Keeper? One of the things that I've learned to be most beneficial for my guests that will save you time and energy is to keep detailed records of your garden journey. So I think I finally found the secret and made a garden journal data keeper that starts any day of the year because uh, you just fill it in. It's blank. There's no calendar. So you just it's got the days of the week. You can record temperature, freeze dates, frost dates, um, when you planted, what variety you got all in one place. So get your copy of the Organic Gardener podcast, Garden Journal, and Data Keeper today. Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.